Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 27th, 2023. Yesterday, uh, did an interesting uh, show with a first-time novelist, Ben Perkett, um, has a new book out called Men. The Men Can't Be Saved, a provocative title about man's struggle or a certain man's struggle in contemporary capitalism. Got a good review in today's Washington Post um, describing uh, the central character in the Perkett book as a bumbling man-child could have felt at home in a novel by Philip Roth. Actually, I don't think he would have felt at home in a novel by Philip Roth, and we talked about that with Ben Perkett. Anyway, brought to mind, uh, some of you may be surprised with this connection, with uh, the Oppenheimer film, the, the Christopher Nolan movie that's getting a huge amount of attention. Uh, we did a show about Oppenheimer uh, with my guest today, Olivia uh, Rattagliano. She's the film critic of Lit Hub. And we talked about Oppenheimer as a male and perhaps in some ways the treatment of Oppenheimer in 2020s as a reflection of our current preoccupation with masculinity and what it means to be a male. As it happens, there was an interesting piece in Variety this morning. Uh, Cillian Murphy, who played Oppenheimer, described him as a naive and suggested that he's open to playing a Ken in Barbie 2, which, of course, brings to mind the other big film of uh, July 2023, Barbie, in some ways even bigger uh, than, um, than Oppenheimer. I saw it yesterday, and in many ways, and maybe this is me doing my own mansplaining, but it seems to be a, a movie not just about women, but about men, maybe not Oppenheimer, but certainly men's perhaps doll-like quality in our contemporary culture. The remarkable uh, performance of Ryan Gosling as Ken is winning many plaudits, some people even suggesting that Gosling may get an Oscar. It's a fascinating film, a rich, complicated, provocative, and I guess in some ways rather annoying film. And I'm thrilled that Olivia is back to talk all things Barbie. Um, Olivia... This connection, I mean, everyone's writing stories. There's even something in foreign policy, of all things, about Barbie and Oppenheimer having more in common you, than you think. Uh, Hollywood's done well when it's getting big pieces in foreign policy magazine. Is there a, a connection, in your view, between Barbie and Oppenheimer when it comes to our sexual politics? Uh, and not just the position of men, but also women in our complicated 2020s? The first thing I thought of when I was thinking about, a, you know, possible uh, reasons for the over the cultural overlap between Barbie and Oppenheimer um, is actually more existential than gender. It's the is both films undertaking themes about uh, death and despair and the meaning of existence. Uh, obviously, Barbie and Oppenheimer are literally different stories in that. Barbie is not about building a bomb that can eradicate humankind, but it is also, it shares Oppenheimer's investment in understanding humans and the tools they have to build 
societies that can destroy in addition to societies that can uh, facilitate advancements and ideas and whatnot. Barbie is very upfront. It's not a subtle film and that's okay. Barbie is very upfront about its curiosity about uh, gender relations, um, specifically um, the way women are treated by society and the way men are treated by society. Oppenheimer is, I think, less interested in the specific dynamics of gender as its pink counterpart. But I do think that both films share a curiosity about characters who are put into certain um, roles and boxes based on their gender, particularly their female gender. In Oppenheimer, there are a few key moments that key us into the inequalities that women are facing in the 1940s. Um, and in, in a way, sort of timelessly, Emily Blunt's character is a biologist who winds up being known mostly as Oppenheimer's wife, um, who has to undertake childcare duties that she's not emotionally prepared to do. She's bored uh, because she's not doing anything stimulating. A lot of the wives of these scientists who are scientists themselves wind up as secretaries on the base. There's a scene in the film that was very salient to me that I referenced in our previous conversation, Andrew, in which a, uh, a woman who has done coursework at Harvard in the chemistry department is asked if she knows how to type in order to be a secretary. And she jokes that that must have not been on the curriculum in the graduate uh, chemistry coursework she was undertaking at Harvard. And so Oppenheimer says, put her on X, you know, X team, put her on the chemistry team. Um, but there are, you know, these little moments that sort of fleck the film with um, a knowing um, gender-based critique of modern society. And I think moments like that put it in an interesting conversation with Barbie. Yeah, you're not. Uh, I, I saw this piece actually earlier and I thought, oh, I didn't know it was about death. But you, you and... Um... Some uh, Malaya Fopt at Insider mm -hmm. agree that it's both about death and not just death of individuals, deaths, I guess, of societies. These are both films about another America, a foreign America. Are they both? And I don't want to just make this a comparison. I want to talk specifically about Barbie. But are they both films which are, shall we say, nostalgic about nostalgia, wanting to be nostalgic, but not actually being too smart to fall into the nostalgia trap, but at the same time wanting to fall into the trap. It's a very interesting critique. I think I, I, I agreed immediately when you said both films are too smart to fall into a trap of nostalgia, but I think nostalgia is also blissful. Uh, it's, it's, it can be plague-like. It can, it can completely subsume um, individuals and transform actual moments in history into rosy-cheeked, and simplistic things that they were not. Uh, I think of the movie Pleasantville, uh, which is about black and white TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and uh, uh, the Donna Reed show and other impossible uh, and feminist disasters of TV from that era. Um, and it's about characters from the modern world who wind up in a TV show like that and who bring color and feeling and verve and passion and literature and art to the society. Reading the overly nostalgia, the over nostalgia for a simple world as actually a kind of fascism, a gray colored fascistic world that doesn't allow for expression and rebellion and other things that are in, important to the human experience. 
So in this way, I think both films are aware that nostalgia is a trap, but at the same time, purposefully traffic in the hallmarks of nostalgia, both as a way to capture the interest of an audience and also to critique how nostalgia sort of itself is a problem glossing over hugely problematic and disastrous aspects from our history that happen to look really good aesthetically or have certain important memories attached to it. Mad Men is a show, you know, for example, that I think um, is an interesting text to ask questions about nostalgia of because it's a film whose aesthetics of the 1950s and 60s and 70s are so fetching and alluring and fascinating, but also belie or are in tune with um, a very systemic oppression of a lot of different people in a powerful industry run by white men. So I think, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, issue. I mean, the, the look and feel certainly mm -hmm. is... Lots of nod and winks. In fact, the whole movie is one long nod and wink, it seems. And, and in a way, the film that it reminded me of, Barbie, a little bit, was Asteroid City, uh, Wes mm -hmm. Anderson's last movie about um, another, another, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, a, a film, a, a, a sort of an ironic film about another America. Do you think there were elements of, of Anderson in this film or perhaps uh, Anderson had elements of Barbie and Asteroid City? I absolutely think these Barbie, Asteroid City and also Oppenheimer could be in conversation. I think in a way Aster, Asteroid City was the original Barbenheimer, the phenomenon of going to see the two as a double feature. Right. Um, it came out, actually it came out the wrong time. Had it come yeah. out after it would have been a lot more successful and I think a lot more interesting. When I saw it, I found it rather boring, but actually mm -hmm. I think I might need to go and see it again. I think it'd be a really interesting third film to place in conversation. Right. With them. Um, especially because it's a very charming, um, nostalgic film that um, asks questions about the retro, you know, asks questions in a retro-futuristic aesthetic about the... Um, like end of World War II, beginning of the you know mid-century period, um, there's nuclear testing going on in the desert at Asteroid City. There are bombs that get tested every day and sort of a strange nod to Los Alamos. Um, but it's also a very beautiful, quaint resort town in which a stylish and fashionable actress um, and many other people who are, who represent sort of um, stereotypes of that particular historical moment, like Boy Scouts and, and um, uh, hotel proprietors of, you know, small desert resorts and, and cowboys and other, you know, archetypical figures gather. And so in this way, I think it has a lot of, in conversation with both. But specifically about Barbie, um, uh, Asteroid City is very much about the human experience with respect to existential questions. Um, and it has a framing device that I'm not going to spoil, but the framing device also underscores that it's very, very difficult sometimes to find or even interpret or understand the meaning that we assume is taking place around us or at, 
but that we're part of in living life. It's very hard to know our purpose. It's very hard to know what the universe is, what we're doing here. And questions about death and religion intersect with questions about science and metaphysics and physics, just specifically physics and extraterrestrial life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, placing um, aesthetic inquiries, like very handmade looking aesthetic inquiries into the styles of certain uh, moments alongside the simmering implications of the texts that were coming into existence at that at those moments. At what point do you think, uh, in what context do you think Barbie might be uh, the next chapter of uh Gerwig's, uh, mm -hmm. well, it's not her movie, she was in it, White Noise, made by her mm -hmm. partner, Noah Baumbach. They're a team in many ways, and I guess they had a lot of fun in terms of the sexual politics, given that they're collaborators. Um, there was a lot of white noise. I mean, it was, it was Barbie is just white noise, not mm -hmm. necessarily in a Delilo-esque way, but it, it's just pure white noise, for better or worse, isn't it? Well, it's ubiquitous. I mean, the Barbie phenomenon, the Barbie, you know, half century has been with Barbie was born in 1959. You know, she's a she's a boomer. She's um, and she's relatively new in the world. And yet she has been the backdrop to some of the most interesting and also um, complicated aspects of the late 20th century, the early 21st century and been part of conversations in negative ways and positive ways has fomented things that have been both negative and positive. I mean, so, you know, Bar Barbie's omnipresence cannot be ignored. So in that way, it's sort of, um, it's sort of white noise-esque. But in terms of that literal text um, and what um, Greta Gerwig's career might be moving toward, um, I thought it was wonderful that she appeared in Noah Baumbach's White Noise because we haven't seen her act in a while. She made Lady Bird, she made Little Women, um, but we've we've sort of been robbed of the delights of the on-screen Greta Gerwig that we were treated to in the uh, 2010s. Um, but Lady Bird and Little Women and Barbie are sort of all in conversation because they're all in they're all films that seek regardless of time period they're three films set in completely different time periods you have lady bird which is set in an early millennia um, early millennial um 21st century obviously little women is an adaptation of louisa may alcott's famous 19th century text and then barbie which takes place uh in the you know 2020s um but also in this sort of um imaginary netherworld um that is you know itself 60 plus years old um, so, you know, even though all three films are temporally and spatially distinct, they're all about the experiences of women, young women and their mothers as they understand or come to try to understand themselves and their place in the world and specifically their place in the world when it is difficult for women to have um, opportunities and possibilities that you know, should be, you know, easier for them to have. Um, but it's very much about girls grappling with questions that make them angry or frustrated or scared or sad and how they look to their mothers and their mothers are also experiencing similar things. It's a, it's film, they're films that are not only for young women, but they're also specifically for a generation or many generations of women who have been mothers or who have um, been the age of mothers or who have aged and who are encountering similar questions that they have when they were girls. And I think the Gerwig's films are very much 
about allowing adult women to experience texts and messaging uh, that they would have experienced from the things they watched or the toys they played with or the books they read as children. Yeah, it never occurred to me, but she was also involved with Anderson's Isle of Dogs, which was an interesting film. And actually, I thought in, um, in Barbie, one of the more interesting and memorable features of the film was the relationship between the mother and daughter. Barbie, of course, doesn't have a mother or daughter. She's all of our mothers and all of our daughters. But um, that was an interesting representation of um, Hispanic mother and daughter that I thought was much more grounded and realistic than the rest of the film and yet kind of worked. What did you think? I thought, well, first of all, I thought America Ferreira's performance was wonderful. And although Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie are deservedly receiving plaudits for their performances, I think America Ferreira's performance is the whole, is the the soul of the film, and that she deserves to be um, uh, lauded for this for this performance. Um, tremendously i think it's the best of her career i think she's an extremely talented actress and capable of demonstrating unbelievable sincerity i thought the relationship between sorry to jump in here uh, but that sincerity of course is in such vivid contrast with barbie yeah i wonder whether that makes it harder or easier to be sincere if you're playing opposite barbie well i thought you know the the Oh, and I have I have so many things I want to say now. Um, I'm just going to answer this very quickly, and then I'll go back to the original. Okay, go on. The um, I think the Margot Robbie's performance as Barbie is really interesting too, because of course Barbie starts out as plastic, and she starts out in a sort of like really fun you girl you go girl feminist utopia where she doesn't need to have um, characteristics of a regular human woman. She has the sort of idealized characteristics, the modern idealized char- char- characteristics. I mean, obviously she's more than just an attractive woman in a bathing suit. Now the point of you know late um. 20 you know first not even late but the 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 late generation of barbie is is that uh you know focused on questions of inclusivity and diversity and product productivity in a way that um the early products of barbie had not been interested in um but I think Barbie does become increasingly sincere because she starts to take on the characteristics of a human woman. So in a way, I wonder, you know, America's America Ferrara's performance is the emotional center, but it sort of guides the increasing humanity of the doll characters who and the, the actors of whom have a very difficult a job of bringing them out from their sort of cartoonish sort of stock attributes, you know, progressive as they are in their, you know, uh, simplicity, um, bringing them out to, to, to greater nuance as the movie progresses. And I think America Ferrara's performance um, allows, um, sort of coaches, coaxes that out of the other performances. Yeah, it's, it's, it, last time we talked, you said it was a, a complicated film. I mean, Oppenheimer, of course, is complicated. For you, what was the most complicated aspect of Barbie? So many things. But I also want to go back to the first question that I ignored, which is about the representation of um, of uh, an, an America Ferrera's character and um, representation of mother and daughter. Um, because I think I think Barbie is so much about mothers and daughters, and I think it's fantastic that America Ferrera. Um, was in this film, but I also think it's wonderful that it's spot. The movie is ultimately seems like it's going to be about um, this sort of like very white privileged female character. Um, And then it becomes a story about other women and that the Barbie, um, 
gambit becomes a way in for a more interesting nuanced story about a woman of color a mother um who is you know featuring some sort of boredom and depression at work and is is not being um given opportunities and chances to grow and develop her power and become more powerful but also have her ideas be turned into into things that are um accessible to other people she draws you know Barbies that she wants to see created um, without actually having the power at the company Mattel where she works to create those Barbies. Um, so I think it tells a wonderful story about um, a woman of color and her daughter who are able to experience um, an increasing togetherness and an exploration of their own relationship, but also in a way that allows this character to um, receive um, the like life she deserves and, and sort of all of the events of Barbie sort of are in service of America Ferreira's character finally getting what she deserves. And I liked watching the mobilization of the Barbies behind her character. And I think that's wonderful. Um, but to, to go back to your second question, uh, which I have now glossed over, um, could you actually repeat it so that I can make sure I, I answer it well? I have to admit, I have to, I have to admit, I can't remember it now because we, we talk <laughs> No, it's okay. I'm sorry. Um, we were talking. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask you about one other film, actually, and, I, and I, it's doubly embarrassing. I can't remember the name of it. It was earlier this year. It's a film about a time warp between the 50s and today, about time travelers, um, imagining people going backwards and forwards between an asteroid city Barbie-like world and our own world. And it was a much more explicit, aggressive film I think about male female relations. Do you remember the name of that film? I I don't off the top of my head. I'm cheating and looking it up. Um it didn't do that well. I think it got quite a lot of there was quite a lot of studio optimism, but it mm -hmm. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's another film that's coming to mind, especially in the Barbenheimer dy dynamic, which is last year's uh box office failure, Don't Worry Darling. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking about. Hey, <laughs> um, which isn't as explicitly about time travel, but it's partially about um, this 1950s style fantasy. Right, right. Um, characters from the modern world who sort of wind up in that fantasy. And it's very, I mean, it's very, I mean, I, I since seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer, I've been longing to tweet that Don't Worry Darling was like last year's failed attempt at uh, Barbenheimer because it's very much about a Los Alamos style desert town where the men leave every day to work on a mysterious government project and the women are left at home. But there's this sort of idealization of the housewife and these women who are smart and who have lots of interests are distilled down to um, their you know, gender essentialist um, presumed preferences like shopping and making hors d'oeuvres. And, and there's this um, systemic oppression that um, happens to these women. So I, I, I think it's a very interesting film to place in conversation with these. But I thought Barbie was a wonderful film because it is ultimately about the liberation of women and also the liberation of men in a way that that film, that, that, that film um, fails to um, fully bring about. That film's ultimately more about like a surprise betrayal. And it ends up being a little more like The Matrix. And I think it gets a little dragged down by its um, attempts to... Right. It, it, I mean, I guess it speaks, don't worry, darling... 
is an attempt to build a more traditional narrative, but it fails. Um, and, and, and what's odd about Barbie is it's such an odd film, and yet it's obviously succeeding. Did you have any problems with Barbie? I mean, a lot of people on the left are saying that um, uh, it claims to be critical of Mattel. There's a piece in The Atlantic by Megan O'Rourke about American girlhood. Well, actually being sponsored by Mattel. So it's a supposedly anti-capitalist film, which is actually the heart of a new kind of, shall we say, feeling uh, capitalism. Did that annoy you or were you, uh, were you tolerant of the central role of Mattel in parodying itself and yet at the same time promoting its own interests and dolls? Yeah, this is when I thought one of the was one of the most complicated and vexing aspects of the film. And Megan O'Rourke's piece in the Atlantic is great. Obviously, Megan O'Rourke is a brilliant writer. Um, and I think I think she she captures the uh, fascinating contradiction at the heart of Barbie, which is um, uh, partially being a parody of Mattel that attempts to su supersede in its own narrative, attempts to supersede the sort of problematic plasticity of Barbie's legacy and become a story about women while it's ultimately it ultimately needs the, you know, um, sponsorship and or like aegis and permission of Mattel in order to proceed. And we've heard lots of stories from sets where the Mattel executives wanted to act certain scenes and Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig had to uh, bring them to set or beg them or do whatever they could to convince them uh, to keep certain scenes in. Well, why? Sorry to jump in again. What, what, why would Mattel be able to control the narrative? It's not their film. No, I think it's just in order to license the product, Mattel. Oh, I see. Okay. Created some sort of... Uh, well, they could have withdrawn. Yeah. Um, See the thing the thing that we've seen you know be the the headlines of um in and think pieces about Greta Gerwig is that uh, Barbie wanted to make a, a product-based corporate film that could launch a series of um, films about their toys, about like, there's a magic right, They're already planning that. I mean, uh, yeah. well, there was a piece um, in Variety about the next Hollywood moves, right. which is really movies, Barney, Polly Pocket, and of course, a sequel to Barbie. I'm sure we're going right. to see many sequels and pre-sequels. Right. Um, and and so, so there's that component. And then Greta Gerwig, you know, apparently wanted to make something that was artistic. And so the, I think there is a there is a lot going on here. And the first thing that I want to acknowledge, which isn't a defense of the film, but is the acknowledgement that like all movies exist, even if they are the most indie movies, like all movies do exist in some way to make money. Um, and movies are, you know, especially when they are facilitated or bought or promoted by a large studio, they are at the mercy of those of the studio's uh, need and attempt to make money. And it is one of the great unfortunate things how art is often always tied to capitalism and success. And there are patrons and sponsors who demand certain things. And um, without those people, unfortunately, such little art would have ever been made. So I think that's, you know, Barbie falls victim to the great, you know, the, the great problem of art, which is, which is patronage. Um, but um, I do think this Barbie movie attempted to do so much more with its subject matter than um, simply become an advertisement for the film. And certainly Mattel has done tons and tons and tons of merchandising and you can buy everything. When I went to go see it, you could get Barbie's car as your popcorn bucket at the AMC. I mean, you know, merchandising in every single possible way. Right. I mean, they've even, I don't know how they've done it. I need to ask my wife because she works for Google, but they've even colonized Google. I've never seen. It's pink. 
Yeah, I mean, when you look up Barbie on Google, it's always pink, whatever you get. I don't know how they did that, whether who's paying who, it's bizarre. Yeah, no, I, I noticed that and I was like, I've never seen this before. Um, so, you know, but I also think that's the that's the film as it is to the studio. That's the film as an obvious money-making, you know, cash cow. But I think that Greta Gerwig as, you know, an artist, but also as a worker, um, made a very interesting movie about our relationship to Barbie. And I think there's no way to make a film about our relationship to a real life object without it certainly seeming like in some ways when it has a good uh, thing to say that it is promoting that product. But I do think Barbie has been such an influential figure factor in the late 20th century, early 21st century um, world that it's sort of silly to try to make a movie without acknowledging all of those things anyway. So I think Barbie is a bit um, painted into a corner by its natural circumstance, but I do think Greta Gerwig's interesting questions and artistry and how she uses a film about plastic figurines who have been so problematic and also liberating to women historically. I mean, originally, you know, the fact that there was an adult, a doll that a girl could play with that didn't insist to her that she could be a mother and just insisted to her that one day she could just be a cool single lady. Uh, the film is aware of that, like very exciting um, aspect of Barbie, but also uh, is aware of the fact that Barbie has promoted harmful body image and myopic and problematic views of um, women and also suggests a sort of ideal of perfection that is in itself um, destructive to women and that doesn't, doesn't allow for a certain type of, um, shall we say, figuring it out kind of personality that that many of us you know in the real world have and um barbie doesn't have to take things in stride barbie is barbie is everything and it's really hard when you're a regular woman to that the expectation either be that you are oppressed or or that you are taking on the world and able to do everything successfully and i think barbie manages to place those things in conversation around that product and its history in really interesting ways i don't think many filmmakers would have been able to make such an interesting film that interrogates a lot of these questions like greta gerwig and i think it is a testament to her vision that um the film which starts out as being extraordinarily plastic i mean literally it, it literally it features dolls i mean it's literally about the dolls um then becomes a film of a great humanity, which is actually more about humans. And I think sometimes the film does suffer from its over-representation of the Mattel executives. Like later, you see, it seems like they're going to be the bad guys. And then at one point it turns out that they actually are more interested in protecting like the feminist turn that the, the doll has taken in its history and, and helping girls. And I feel like that's way less believable. I mean, I don't know how whether or not Mattel would have allowed that. But there's another scene that Mattel really wanted to take out that I think gets, in, gets to the heart of Barbie and why it's ultimately a, a smart and interesting and relatively progressive film about women, which is, you know, Barbie, as she increasingly um, takes on characteristics of humans, um, including uh, an awareness of death, like an existential fear of death. And also uh, she gets, you know, non-unrealistically arched feet. She gets regular flat feet and she starts to get cellulite and that immediately freaks her out. And she starts to, to panic and, and she eventually decides to go to the real world and fix this, this problem that is 
causing her to take on these human characteristics, specifically because she wants to eradicate the cellulite that's forming on her thigh. And then later when she's in the real world, she sits next to a woman at a bus station and it's an older woman. And the woman is actually one of um, the 20th century's most important costume designers, Anne Roth. And so that's just a kind of cool nod. But she sits next to this older woman at a bus station and she turns and she looks at her and she's overtaken by that woman's beauty and elegance. And she says, you're beautiful. And the older woman, you know, says, I know it. And they both laugh. But in that moment, Barbie realizes that the idea that women would be afraid of cellulite or they would be afraid of their own bodies from taking on the characteristics of the life they've lived or the years they've been, had the privilege of experience is all some, is all, you know, a, a, a it's a fallacy. It's a, it's this conspiracy against women to get them to, you know, not, be satisfied with themselves as human beings and there's an ideal of perfection that is being ignored and she's such she's not afraid of aging she's not afraid of her body body in fact she realizes that the experience of being a human the experience of being a real person a real woman is beautiful and is that motivates her decision to later on become a human um, rather than a doll um, because she wants to be um, some, as she says, she wants to be something that makes meaning, not something that meaning is thrust upon. And I think that's a really lovely um, and pro pro probably the best case scenario for a movie that is ultimately chained to its corporate sponsorship in some way, that it still allows the reminder that women are not objects and that women uh, should be allowed to decide meaning and decide what it means to be a woman uh, without um, any other oppressive labeling or control. Olivia, wanna, you know, thinking about all this aloud, you know, it seems like an odd film, film about a doll, an iconic, culturally iconic doll who comes to life and enters the human world surreal bizarre and all the rest of it and yet on an odd way in a particularly odd way it actually is a much more relevant film i think for our age than perhaps oppenheimer or asteroid city um or uh, even don't worry darling they're all dealing with the same issue uh, of our cultural politics. We're on the brink of the 2024 election. Trump may win the nomination for the Republicans or DeSantis. DeSantis in particular would hate, I'm guessing, uh, Barbie. He's already declared war on Disney, and Disney is another version of Mattel in many ways. Um, is the success of Barbie, do you think it's cheering up Democratic pollsters? I think the success of Barbie, and I'm not the first person to say this, there's a wonderful think piece in the New York Times opinion section about this. I think the success of Barbie is doing something similar as the Taylor Swift Eras tour, which is, of course, monumental. Um, I think it's reminding us that stories and figures that take women and women's experiences seriously are important. And I think the fact that we're getting more and more of those is a, is a very good sign. Um, I think... I like how unsubtle Barbie is about its feminism because I think we're in a, shall we say we're in a post-subtle world. We had a former president who, whose loud 
um, extraordinarily misogynistic phrasings like, you know, grab them by the pussy did not deter his journey to the White House. And in fact, in some ways galvanized it. We're in an era of extremely blunt articulations. And I think Barbie's extreme bluntness um, provided a nice foil to some of the misogynistic, racist and um, ableist and xenophobic rhetoric we've been experiencing on the other side. Like the, I think the left needs to be um, a little less intellectual in some phrasing and just come out and say certain things. And I think Barbie does come out and say certain things in ways that are really obvious. And I think that's helpful. Um, I think Taylor Swift does that too. I think there's very, I mean, obviously Taylor Swift leads like leaves like little codes in her music and stuff, but I think Taylor Swift's messages about female empowerment, empowerment of the, you know, LGBTQ community or, you know, um, non-gender conforming people are uh, who are included in this. Um, so women and non-gender conforming people, you know, LGBTQ society. I think there's a lot of messaging that is for those people um, that is direct and that underscores that they are important, not just at not just as audiences and as, as demographics, but as people. And I hope this is a powerful tide that continues to um, persist because I think it is it is extremely powerful in counteracting some of the you know very you know, fascist um, articulations on the right. Um, I think also Barbie is extremely important as a movie about men. I think, you know, the, the definition of feminism is the belief that, the, you know, all genders are equal. Um, and it's not about the supremacy of women, just as the, you know, the world should not be about the supremacy of men. And I think there's a really interesting part of Barbie where, um, aspect of Barbie where Ken um, who was invented as uh, an accessory to Barbie, Greta Gerwig referred to the later accompaniment of uh, Barbie by Ken as a reverse Genesis story, you know, just as in the Bible, um, Barbie, you know, I'm sorry, just as in the Bible, Eve was made um, from Adam's rib, you know, so in the Barbie universe is, Kev is Ken, um, coming into existence to augment Barbie. You know, Greta Gerwig, I think, said she, uh, to burnish Barbie's position in our eyes, or, or I'm paraphrasing. Um, and, but in this way, in, in the, the Barbie world, which is sort of, you know, like a female utopia in many ways, the Ken sort of don't have jobs or, you know, are a little disenfranchised and sort of don't have anything to do. And I think the film ultimately comes to a place that is a, um, that, that underscores that the, that the, forced inferiority of one group of people is never okay. And, um, but also the film is very much about like in a way that possibly allegor allegorizes incel culture and also the January 6th insurrection and a lot of the like proud boy MAGA culture that is so rampantly anti-women and anti-LGBTQ people and racist and bad in every single possible way. Um, because the Kens, you know, discover that in the real world, um, the patriarchy exists and they become galvanized by it rather than depressed. Because, of course, the conceit of Barbie is that the Barbies in Barbie land believe that they've solved all the problems that women have had to face because now they show little girls that girls can be dentists and veterinarians and they can be astronauts and anything. Even they presidents, want. right? Even president, so... Right. And problem solved. Um, and then when, of course, Barbie goes into the real world, is she's dismayed to find out that not only is this not the current, but also that so many things happen to be in the reverse. And Ken is galvanized by this and goes and brings back the the, the triumph of men um, to Barbie land. And then all the men sort of <laughs> attack the, the 
you know, the, the Barbie led female world and um, dismantle everything they've written and, and, and created and, and built. And in a way it seems to suggest like a sort of rollback of, of women's rights that does exist in our cultural moment, including like the rollback of, of bodily control and abortion rights. And I mean, the film isn't, the film doesn't say any of this literally, but it's sort of clear in this, in the fact that um, these Barbies who have done so much are now, being forced to have decisions made for them by these Kens and um, the Kens are just one group of people. There's also Alan, who's a, who's a good guy in, in Barbie land. And he's, he's also tough. He has the, the he has a fight scene and it's the best scene in the movie. Um, yeah. That know, fight scene was, was, yeah. was memorable. All of Ken's clothes fit me. It's amazing. But, um, you know, so the film, the film is, um, but it's very clear about a certain current of masculinity and a certain kind of masculinity that feels that either you have to possess or you have to oppress women if they won't let you possess them. Yeah, it, it, it's funny that, let, let's try and end, Olivia, because you, it's, it's so much to talk about. We could do hours <laughs> on this stuff. But it's a film that resists nostalgia, and yet it, it's bringing an old world back. Uh, the New Yorker had an interesting... Um, piece by Antley Lane, an excellent film reviewer, about how Oppenheimer and Barbie are bringing monumental figures to mm. life. What it's doing is bringing film critics like you and Anthony Lane back to life. It could have been a movie made for film critics because it's so rich. You can write about it in terms of death and capitalism and men and women. Uh, and of course, not only has it brought movie critics back centrally to our culture, but also Hollywood itself. Uh, uh mattel's talking now about um doing more movies and putting more money in and the new york times leads with uh the movie business lives is this a blip in the um the the, the bringing back to life of hollywood or does it signify something broader for the 21st century movie business olivia is it good news for hollywood of course the writers are now on strike ai has uh offered another existential crisis to not just the movie business but certainly the creative people around it what do you make of barbie and oppenheimer in the broader context of the movie business of the 2020s i think it underscores that people always want to go to the movies and people want to see good movies and interesting movies and projects like this by good writers deserve to be greenlit and those writers deserve to be paid etc cetera, etc cetera. like the, it, the movie business is so much more profitable when good quality products are made instead of endless derivatives and sequels of, and franchises are being rebooted sort of lifelessly as is happening to the harry potter and the hunger games and all these things i mean i think there's there's such a hunger for quality work I think it's a signifier of that first and foremost. I also think the studios sort of forget this, especially with the launch of streaming services that yes, allow people to access content more readily, um, but does hamper the traditional rollout of movies. I think if anything, since 1975, when Jaws premiered and for decades before that, when people were going to see A and B features and cartoons and newsreels, people always want to go to the movies. I think Anything that reminds us of this and perhaps puts the studios in a position so that they're able to pay for quality work appropriately, I think that is a step in the right direction.